For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the best of Newt's World. Coming up, my interview with Walter Isaacson. On this episode of Newt's World. A few years ago, with my colleague Emmanuel Charpentier, I invented a new technology for editing genomes. It's called CRISPR-Cas9. The CRISPR technology allows scientists to make changes to the DNA in cells that could allow us to cure genetic disease. You might be interested to know that the CRISPR technology came about through a basic research project that was aimed at discovering how bacteria fight viral infections. Bacteria have to deal with viruses in their environment, and we can think about a viral infection like a ticking time bomb. A bacterium has only a few minutes to diffuse the bomb before it gets destroyed. So many bacteria have in their cells an adaptive immune system called CRISPR that allows them to detect viral DNA and destroy it. Part of the CRISPR system is a protein called Cas9 that's able to seek out and cut and eventually degrade uh, viral DNA in a specific way. And it was through our research to understand the activity of this protein Cas9 that we realized that we could harness its function as a genetic engineering technology, a way for scientists to delete or insert specific bits of DNA into cells with incredible precision that would offer opportunities to do things that really haven't been possible in the past. My guest today is Walter Isaacson, who's been a friend for many, many years. He's the best-selling author of biographies about Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin. Some have called him the biographer of geniuses. And now he has added Jennifer Doudna to that list with his New York Times bestseller, The Code Breaker. Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. It is a gripping account of how Nobel Prize winner Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues launched a revolution that will allow us to cure diseases, fend off viruses, and have healthier babies. Walter, thank you for joining me. It's great to talk with you. 
Let's start at the beginning. What led you to decide to become a chronicler of unique and genius personalities? I think that humans can affect the course of history. You and I have both been history professors, and we know that sometimes in the academy, people think it's all these grand economic forces or whatever. But I like to believe that every now and then a creative person comes along and they're able to change things. And so whether it's Steve Jobs or Henry Kissinger or Leonardo da Vinci, Ben Franklin, to me, I want to inspire people by saying, here's how people affect history. And Jennifer Doudna is the latest subject because she's leading the third great revolution of our times in terms of science. The first was a physics revolution from Einstein that gave us the atom bomb and space travel. The second was a revolution in information technology with Steve Jobs and others that gave us personal computers. And now we're going to be able to treat our own molecules as microchips. We're going to be able to reprogram the genetic code in our body. And that's going to have more consequences, I think, than even the information technology revolution. So when you began looking at your next big book, what drew you to her? I mean, there are many different ways to tell that story. And you picked endowed in a very unique way. Yes, I had been interested in all the people who were involved in the life science revolution and had a really colorful cast of characters, all of whom are in the book, from George Church and Feng Zhang to Emmanuel Charpentier. But the more I met with Jennifer Doudna, the more I realized that she was able to be a narrative thread that would tie together all the themes I wanted, starting with the discovery of the structure of DNA, which she reads about as a young child and becomes fascinated by the structure of molecules and also by the role of somebody named Rosalind Franklin, who hasn't gotten that much acclaim in history, but taught Jennifer that a woman could be a scientist. And then she goes and she understands that RNA rather than DNA is the more important molecule in our bodies. And she discovers how RNA can be a guide to cut up our genes, but it can also be a messenger to give us vaccines against the coronavirus. It's also how life began on this planet, because she discovers how RNA can replicate itself, thus becoming the first molecule that becomes a living organism. And finally, she starts wrestling with the moral issues of gene editing. So I like writing narrative history. You do it as well. I've read your books. And narrative history usually benefits from having a central character that we can follow that personalizes what becomes a journey of discovery and a journey of invention. And so the more I read about all the people and met all the people in the life sciences, I said, let me use Jennifer Doudna as my central character. I'm curious for a second, if we can take a brief detour on behalf of those of us who don't know nearly as much as you do, would you walk us just for a minute through the difference between DNA, which is more popularly understood, and RNA? How should the average person understand those two? Yeah, DNA is the famous molecule, the one that gets on magazine covers and becomes a metaphor for the DNA in our society or whatever it may be. But like a lot of famous siblings, it doesn't really do much work. It just sits in the nucleus of our cells and it curates information. And, you know, all it does is guard our genetic information. RNA actually is a sibling that does real work. It actually makes products. And so what RNA does is it goes and takes a little bit of the information from the DNA 
and moves to the region in our cell where we manufacture proteins. And it oversees the manufacturing of proteins, whether it's a hair follicle or a fingernail or a hormone or an enzyme or whatever it's supposed to be in our body. And so RNA is always in motion. It can act as a guide. It can act as a messenger telling us, as in the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna, what proteins to build. But they both use a four-letter code to say, here's all the information you need to build a human, or for that matter, any other organism. In our case, there are three billion pairs of those letters in DNA. And RNA gets to transcribe them using a very similar code to say, okay, let me go do something with that information. When you're going down this road and you're beginning to learn all this, what attracted you to Doudna as your sort of storyline? I think she's a decent person who cares about the ethical implications. Like all of the characters I've written about, she stands with one foot in the humanities and one foot in the sciences. That's what Steve Jobs did. That's what Ben Franklin did. That's what Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man drawing is all about. And so she can help connect us to the technologies that we have. Secondly, she was very creative. She was curious about basic science. She enters into this field, not trying to make an invention that will edit our genes or give us vaccines. She enters into it because she's curious about why do bacteria have clustered repeated sequences, which we call CRISPRs. And so she and a group of other scientists were just doing it driven by pure curiosity. But one day when she figured out that here are the components of the system that can guide a scissors in our cell, an enzyme in our cell to cut our genes, she has an aha moment and it says, oh, I can repurpose that. I can re-engineer it to be a system that edits our own genetic code. And in doing that, she helps develop the whole notion of how you use CRISPR almost as an engineering device. This is my language, not yours, but it's almost like she's figuring out the engineering that enables us to reshape the relationships between RNA and DNA. And is that a reasonable way to think of it? I think what she's doing is she's using the power of RNA to edit the genes in our body because RNA knows how to target something. It's a good targeting tool. It knows here's a piece of genetic code I want to change. And so She's able to engineer a system that bacteria use for one billion years, which is when bacteria get attacked by viruses, they take a little mugshot of the virus that attacks them, and they keep a little bit of the genetic code of that virus in their own clustered repeated sequences, known as CRISPRs. And so they can use the RNA to target that virus if it attacks again. Now, that's pretty useful in this day and age when we keep getting attacked by viruses. But she also made it useful to say, oh, if we can use RNA as a targeting tool when it sees a piece of genetic code it doesn't like, we can make that into an editing tool that, you know, cuts and even pastes genetic code we don't like or do like. So in principle, for example, you can use CRISPR, at least in theory, to begin targeting, say, cancer-causing genes, and to eliminate that which is dangerous. Absolutely. And that's such a wonderful promise. And it's not just potentially. Last year in Mississippi, I'll pick one example, a woman named Victoria Gray, who suffered her whole life from sickle cell, is cured by CRISPR. 
and sickle cell is out of the three billion letters in your body. If you get one letter wrong, it switches from one letter to the other letter, then you're going to have sickled cells, meaning your blood cells are going to be crumpled up. And so now with this CRISPR gene editing tool, we're able to fix that one letter mutation. We can do it, as you just said, on cancer, because one of the problems we have using immunotherapy, meaning using our own immune system to fight cancer cells, is cancer is pretty tricky and wily, and it knows how to turn off our immune system. Well, using CRISPR, you can make it so it doesn't have the key to turn off our immune system. And it has been used to fight congenital blindness up in Portland and in a couple of other places. They're in clinical trials with that. So the easiest use of CRISPR, by far the least controversial use of CRISPR, is in living patients who have very simple bad diseases that are caused by simple genetic mutations. And they're almost 7,000 of those, meaning muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, Tay-Sachs, Huntington, sickle cell, many others. So from the standpoint of the breakthrough she created, she's sort of the engineer who provides the tools for the engineers. Right, right. Once you've created this tool called CRISPR gene editing tool, the great thing about it is it's all done in code. So you can code the RNA to go snip up something that involves sickle cell, but somebody else can recode it and say, do me this gene that causes congenital blindness in eye cells. And so there are now hundreds of researchers around the world, and there are these conferences called CRISPR conferences, where they meet and they say, let me use this tool and I'm going to reprogram it to fight cancer. I'm going to reprogram it to fight muscular dystrophy. It's not just inventing a cure for a disease. She invented a platform, a tool that others can use to cure and recode it to cure many diseases. When she wins the Nobel Prize with her research partner, Emmanuel Charpentier, this past October, the Nobel Committee says it's not just for one discovery. It's for bringing science into a whole new era. They are rewriting the code of life. So you put your finger on it exactly. They've not just made a discovery, they've made a platform of which there'll be thousands of discoveries in the next decade or two. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. In my new book, March the Majority, The Real Story of the Republican Revolution, I offer strategies and insights for everyday citizens and for seasoned politicians. It's both a guide for political success and for winning back the majority in 2024. March the Majority outlines the 16-year campaign to write the contract with America, explains how we elected the first Republican House majority in 40 years, and how we worked with President Bill Clinton to pass major reforms including four consecutive balanced budgets. March to the Majority tells the behind-the-scenes story of how we got it done. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book and order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. You know, on the one hand, it sounds almost like science fiction. On the other hand, if I understand it correctly... Yogurts played a role in all this, and two French food scientists who actually were working in Wisconsin played a role in it. I mean, how does one of the most ancient of human foods fit back into the most modern of scientific breakthroughs? Well, as I said, it comes from a simple curiosity about nature, which involves bacteria. Bacteria have been fighting viruses for a billion years, and they developed this system to use an RNA guide to chop up a virus that attacks them. Well, name the industry that most depends on healthy bacteria. Well, that's the cheese and yogurt industry, $4 billion a year of creating starter cultures. Starter cultures are bacteria that takes milk and turns it into cheese somehow or turns it into yogurt. And, you know, you've been in government and you know this interplay between basic science and applied science. And so what happens is we have the basic scientists who are looking at what the heck are bacteria doing with all these repeated sequences in their DNA. And then you get a group of yogurt scientists who work for Danisco, a couple of them, and they have a history of 20 years of the genetic sequences of all the bacteria that have been used to make yogurts. And they got a lot of money, too, because Danisco is really, really eager to spend money to protect its yogurt cultures. And so they go back through all 20 years of the history of these bacteria genetic sequences, and they discover that, oh, I get it. Every time a new type of virus hits our yogurt culture, the next year we see a sequence that has this little clustered repeat with some of the virus's genetic code. So that was one of the initial discoveries that this was a virus fighting trick that bacteria use. And so they patented it. And that's why if you eat your yogurt and a lot of people are against GMOs or whatever, but then don't eat yogurt or cheese. That's how we begin with gene editing 
so that the yogurt culture doesn't get killed by viruses. This is all sort of wild. I mean, here you have things that had evolved in nature that created a framework for things that we were trying to now evolve in laboratories. And you can go back and you can look at the way in which nature itself in some areas had evolved. And it's very striking to me that part of what happens, and I think this is one of the most complex parts of how science occurs, is you have great individual scientists, but they're inevitably part of a web of discovery that involves many other people and may involve people who were working on projects that had no relationship to what they ultimately affected. I mean, aren't you sort of fascinated by the way both the formal team and the informal network come together when you get these great breakthroughs? Absolutely. And what you have is basic science doing this sort of dance with applied scientists. And that takes people from around the world. It takes a lot of collaboration. Jennifer Doudna collaborated with the French scientist Emmanuel Charpentier. They worked with the yogurt makers I told you about, Philippe Barangou and Horvath. And they had a team that helped create this CRISPR tool. But also competition is involved. There was another team at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, led by Eric Lander, who you know, and Fong Zhang, one of his scientists. And they're competing to say, how can we use this in humans? And they're in a battle still over the patent rights for how do we use this tool to edit human genes? And they're in a race to win the prizes. Ends up that Jennifer Doudna, my main character and her partner, won the Nobel Prize, but Fong Zhang and his team at MIT have also won prizes. So you have the competition that's spurred by patents and prizes and the priorities of publication and you know getting the fame for doing things, but you also have the collaboration and collegiality of hundreds of scientists around the world making little discoveries. I sometimes think that patents are a little bit outmoded because they have to find one inventor or one clear set of inventors when there may be a hundred people or a thousand people who contribute it. That's probably too complicated to write into patent law, but certainly prizes like the Nobel can only be given to three people. I think that distorts science a bit because it makes it so you're not sharing your information as much as you would. The interesting thing to me though, is when coronavirus struck, both the team at MIT and then Jennifer Doudna's team at Berkeley both turned their attention to coronavirus and they quit trying to patent the use of whatever they discovered. They just put it in the public domain instantly on internet servers, not in peer-reviewed journals, to say, here's what we've discovered this week. Anybody fighting COVID can use it. So I think maybe the pandemic helped us write that balance between the competition that occurs and the cooperation that occurs in basic science research. I'm curious because you emphasize in your work on Steve Jobs that the Jobs himself thought that creating teams was sort of central to why Apple had worked. How did Doudna go about creating the team that ultimately had such great accomplishments? Right, when I asked Steve Jobs what was his greatest discovery, I thought he'd say the iPhone or the Macintosh, but he said, no, building products is hard, but what's really hard is building a team that can continue to build good products. And he built a team like Franklin Roosevelt from your history studies and to some extent Lincoln 
from Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals, he liked to build people that had creative tension. He liked to have teams of people that were always clashing with each other because he thought that spurred creativity. It challenged people's thinking. But there's no one correct way to build teams. And Doudna was much more collegial. Whenever somebody was going to join one of the companies she founded or join the team at her Berkeley lab or become a postdoc studying under her, she would invite them in and say, talk to everybody in the lab, talk to everybody in the company. And then they would all meet to make sure the person fit in. I said, well, aren't you losing some of the value of creative tension if you do that? And she says, maybe so, but different leaders form teams in different ways. And my way is to emphasize working together really closely, staying up all night together to hack some problem and trusting everybody else on the team. And you can look at Ben Franklin, the book I did on him, and he helped build that team of founders that was probably the greatest team ever built, which is you needed to have a man of great rectitude like George Washington. You needed to have really smart people like Jefferson and Madison. You needed to have passionate people like Samuel Adams and his cousin John Adams. But you also needed a Ben Franklin who would be a glue that could bring them all together and sort of, you know, wisely help reduce the tensions. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm curious, one of the things I admire about your work is there's always 
a sense of ethical concern and a sense of values beyond just the story. And with CRISPR, you get, I think, into really at the cutting edge of an almost godlike power that on the one hand can be really good, but on the other hand can be really, really dangerous. How in your own mind, as you've read all this and as you've interviewed these people and been in their labs and watched them, how do you work through the ethics of CRISPR, whether it ends up being used in, in a lab in Wuhan or it ends up being used at a great hospital saving lives? When Jennifer Doudna invented this technology with her team, she had a nightmare. And it was that she gets called into a room and somebody wants to know how to use it. And when that person looks up, it's Hitler. And so she has trouble sleeping for weeks after that. And she starts gathering scientists and religious leaders and political leaders and ethicists from around the world, including China, somebody I know there, Duang Jingpei of the National Academy there, but the Royal Academy in England, the Europeans and the Americans and Canadians. And they say, how are we going to use this tool properly? Because we talked earlier about the clearly great stuff you can do, like taking a kid with sickle cell and saying, all right, you no longer have sickled cells. But you could also make hereditary edits and give your children traits. And you might say, well, that's a good idea. Let's give them the trait, you know, not to have sickle cell. And that makes some sense. But in China, a doctor did it and made inheritable edits and early stage embryos so that you create designer children. And there was a lot of upset because that was crossing a line. It's almost like, you know, Adam and Eve biting into the apple or Prometheus snatching fire from the gods. If you're going to snatch those powers, you're going to have to be careful of how you use that tree of knowledge. On second thought, what that Chinese scientist did was edit the children so they didn't have the receptor for HIV, the virus that causes AIDS. So you have to say, well, maybe after this pandemic, using CRISPR to make sure we don't have virus receptors, as long as it's safe, which it wasn't when he did it, and we know it's effective, maybe that's a good idea. But what would you think about saying, all right, I want my kids to be eight inches taller? That really doesn't advantage all of humanity. If everybody were eight inches taller, we wouldn't be better off, you know, especially given the size of airline seats these days. So it's only an advantage if you're wealthy and you can buy eight inches for your kid and then your kid's better off. And that gets us back to the science fiction. Brave New World is exactly about that. We create genetic elite with genetic inequalities that people can pay for. Well, whatever you believe about the free market system, you'd probably pause before you'd say, well, let's take inequalities we have and allow people to encode it so certain families have an aristocracy. You know, they're taller and they have higher IQ points and all these things. You could have a dystopian society if we got to that brave new world where different parts of our species were genetically elite or not. That's what the movie Gattaca is about. Well, part of that which intrigues me is that we don't fully understand why certain adaptive patterns occur. So, for example, there may well have been a positive outcome from having sickle cell in equatorial Africa, probably involving malaria. And it'll be interesting because I think as smart as we are now as a species, we still tend to ask pretty linear questions and not necessarily understand 
all the permutations that make it more dangerous to do certain things. I think, for example, this whole issue of biological warfare, which I've been involved with for over 20 years, and then a species which has now invented hydrogen bombs and which has created extraordinary levels of control capability through information. It's sort of hard to say the next one is worse, but there is something that seems to me a little more frightening about a biological weapon than about these other things. As you were going through these labs and you were learning about the capabilities and the possibilities, to what extent were you also just jarred by this question of Shelley's Frankenstein or a terrorist who pays somebody a lot of money to develop a specific capacity and then unleashes it or threatens to unleash it unless their demands are met? Absolutely. I was worried about it in the coronavirus pandemic, whatever the source of that virus, and I don't think we fully know yet, at least raises the specter that people can create using uh, genetic or biological tools, very bad weapons. The largest funder right now of research at Jennifer Doudna's lab and at the lab at Broad Institute on uses of CRISPR is DARPA the Defense Department's Advanced Research Project Agency. And they created, and Jennifer's team helped create it, something called anti-CRISPR, which you can figure out. It's just what it says. And it means just like you can have ballistic missile systems, you can have anti-ballistic missile systems. So the military gets that quite well. And so one of the worries I would have with gene editing is not so much that you gene edit a human, although that's something that's possible, is that you gene edit a whole wave of mosquitoes with a gene drive that would make them able to carry incredibly dangerous pathogens and unleash them on a population. I mean, that's a pretty simple biological weapon that could be pretty destructive. And so anti-CRISPR is a way to make sure those mosquitoes, CRISPR systems, the edits of those, get turned off. But Vladimir Putin has said at a youth conference a couple of years ago, he was extolling the virtues of this tool that Doudna had helped create. And he said, CRISPR may someday be able to make us create soldiers that are impervious to radiation. They don't get radiation sickness. And they may be impervious to pain or even impervious to fear. So you can see what an autocrat or a person interested in military uses could think of doing. I do think that it's a possibility that it can become the subject for cooperation. I take heart that the Chinese are the ones pretty far ahead of this game. They've done it in cancer. And after one of their scientists, a kind of young scientist in one of the provinces, edited embryos, they decided it was against the international and their own national regulations. He's put on trial and he's in jail for three years. And they started coming to meetings with their American counterparts to saying, all right, what are the limits and how are we going to have detection to make sure people don't make inheritable genetic edits? So as you know, from studies of the Cold War and anything else, we're going to be in a struggle with China. And when Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan meet their counterparts in Alaska a couple of weeks ago, there was a long list of things they fought about. 
But even Kissinger, when he is doing detente with Russia, says, well, maybe here's a list that we can try to cooperate on. And that would be cultural and scientific exchanges. And at the moment, we're now doing that with CRISPR. Not that I necessarily trust all other countries, but I think it's good to be discussing with China and the Europeans and the British, and hopefully someday the Russians will come in on it, ways that we're going to control genetic editing. I have to ask you, because you sort of remind me of a wonderful gourmet shopper who goes through this grocery store of life, and you pluck a Benjamin Franklin out, and then you pluck out you know, somebody else. And in almost every case, they're unique personalities with fascinating life stories who've had a significant impact on history. So I have to ask, what part of the grocery store are you drifting towards now as you think about your next big project? That's a good question, because I was surprised how amazing it was to stumble across the grocery aisle that involved the life sciences, something I had not, you know, thought about too much before. And I thought this was going to be a rich and interesting grocery aisle, to use your metaphor, filled with amazing characters and colorful things. And then when I studied CRISPR and the coronavirus hit, I realized I'd been understating how amazing this field is. I'm interested in science and technology, but I'm particularly like you, interested in people, I'll call them the Ben Franklins and Leonardo da Vinci's, who try to connect everything. They are polymaths. I mean, I started out in a news magazine where I would write about music one week and medicine the next week and foreign policy the next and business the fourth week. So I became interested in different fields. So I'm going to try to find somebody who, like Leonardo da Vinci did and maybe Aristotle did, but somebody who tries to connect all the fields because patterns ripple across nature. And if you see how spirals work on water running past a rock, as Leonardo did as a kid, you're going to end up understanding the math of spirals and then maybe painting the curls of the Mona Lisa. And so if you're interested in everything from anatomy to art to zoology, you have a feel for those patterns. So I'm looking for great, what I would call, Renaissance people. Yeah, in a sense, that was the original meaning of a Renaissance person. The question was, in part, was knowledge sufficiently limited and at the same time being infused with enough new things being imported from the Arab world and being imported from the discovery of the Greek and Roman world, that you suddenly are at this intersection. And I think part of what you've proven is that in every century, you can find people who have common characteristics and who leave behind a bigger footprint than you would imagine. Yeah, it happens in Florence, as you say, in the late 1400s, when Constantinople is falling and people from the Arab world are coming and bringing amazing things like algebra. And I think we sometimes forget how amazing algebra is, if you want to understand this world. Or people coming in from Germany and bringing the printing press that Gutenberg has just invented. And people coming in from Asia on the Silk Road and other places. And it all fuses together in Florence. And you have these cradles of creativity throughout history. I would put Philadelphia in the 1770s in that category. Because Unlike other places in the colony, it wasn't a Puritan theocracy like Boston or it wasn't like Virginia. It had all sorts of people in it. It had 
you know, Anglicans and Protestants and Catholics and slaves and freed slaves and Jews and Moravians and loyalists and anti-monarchists and everything else. And that ferment allows you a Ben Franklin and a group of founders coming together, creating the greatest document ever written, which is our Constitution. So you have to look for those cradles of creativity where just different ideas, as you put it, you know, come together into a ferment. You know, Peter Drucker once wrote that the key to genius wasn't how smart you were or how hard you worked. It was the size of the question you ask. And the people who ask a certain size question sort of have to grow into genius status to just find the answer. You know, this happened to Jennifer Dowden, my main character. In the 1990s, she was a graduate student. And most of the men in biology then were on the Human Genome Project, which was sort of an alpha male project. You know, the people involved from Craig Ventner to Eric Lander to Francis Collins. And so there were a couple of women who said, all right, I'm not going to run where the soccer ball is. I'm going to play the rest of the field. And they're the ones who focus not on sequencing the DNA, but on figuring out the role of the RNA, which, as we said at the very beginning, turns out if you're going to make a vaccine, if you're going to make a gene editing tool, the RNA is the molecule that you want to understand. And she's doing it with a professor at Harvard named Jack Shostak. And she's just in the minute details of exactly the shape and the structure of RNA and how maybe that allows RNA to edit its own self and to create copies of itself. And Jack Shostak says, all right, but what's the big picture? What's the big idea? I mean, this is fine. What are you pursuing? And she has a few answers. She talks about things. He says, no, the big question is, how did life begin? And nobody's figured it out yet. But if you can discover how RNA can come together with just a pool of three or four chemicals in some primordial stew four billion years ago, and then you can show how just in that mix of chemicals four billion years ago, it learned to replicate itself, then you've helped discover the secret of how life began. And indeed, that's now our theory called the RNA world of how life began on the planet. And Jennifer Doudna told me, it taught me two related things, which is always look at the big picture. And number two, never forget that God is in the details. So it's a tiny detail of how that molecule folds and twists, but it's the big picture that drives you. That's amazing. Well, listen, you're such a polymath yourself, and you have been so extraordinarily productive that we're going to list all of your books on our show page and people could actually go through the University of Isaacson. To have read your books would be the equivalent of getting a graduate degree. Well, let me turn the compliment back. You too are a polymath. I've never ceased to be amazed in the 30 or 40 years in which our paths have crossed or you've come to conferences or I've been with you that you have some new ideas about everything at all times. And that's what we should aspire to do. It keeps our minds nimble. It keeps our minds open. And it reminds us that curiosity, just pure curiosity, is the key to creativity. I think that's right. I've also tried to follow the principle of asking questions large enough that it's worth the effort to learn them. And that turns out to be an endless process, because as you well know from your own experience, the world is amazingly complex 
and constantly evolving. Yeah, and your life has reflected that both professionally and geographically. And I think to some extent, probably mine has too. So it's always great to be with you. And it's remarkable to watch your career and, and your ability to keep absorbing new things and keep teaching the rest of us new things. So I'm very grateful you take this time and, and be with us. Well, it's always good to be with somebody who stays curious. Thank you, Newt. Thank you to my guest, Walter Isaacson. You can read more about Jennifer Dudna and get a link to order the Code Breaker on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Jack Armstrong, he's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on, but we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality starting May 8th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Clay! 
am comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.